Now, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Patrick Garcia, and I am one of our newest pastors here on staff at Crossroads. And I just want to say what an honor it is to be part of such a church. Uh, what you may not see on a daily basis is the selfless humility that defines so many of our pastors, elders, and various staff members. And uh, it is just so refreshing for me to see. And I just want you to know how blessed we all are uh, to be a part of this great church that we call uh, Crossroads. And so again, I am so uh, thrilled uh, by the opportunity to serve here. Now, some of you may recall about three months ago, hearing about the miraculous rescue of three women in Cleveland, Ohio, who had been kidnapped for nearly a decade. From the time of 2002 to 2004, a man by the name of Ariel Castro held captive in his control, Amanda Berry, Gina De Jesus, and Michelle Knight. Now, surprisingly, in May of this year, these women were all found alive living in the basement of Castro's home. Now, tragically, these women had been beaten, abused, and starved. One of them even had a child with Castro. It's even, it's just so hard to imagine how anybody could live in such circumstances for nearly a decade. Well, after their rescue, questions started emerging from every which direction. Why didn't these women try to escape sooner? Why didn't they just run to a neighbor's house and call the police? How often had they been out in public and thought about running away from Castro, but then at the last second, chickened out? Now, since then, psychiatrists have attempted to explain why these women didn't escape when the opportunity arose. They say that they may have suffered from what is called the Stockholm Syndrome. Now, that name was coined after some bank employees back in the 70s were held hostage in Stockholm, Sweden, and began to form an emotional bond with their captor and even defended, them, defended him after their release. Experts say that victims in such circumstances figures out that if you do exactly what the criminal wants, that he'll be nicer to you. All the while, the criminal is trying to convince you that the police, the good guys, really aren't good. And so the longer the person goes without being rescued, the more likely they are to build up anger, anger towards the police, and they're more likely to confuse the good guys for the bad guys and the bad guys for the good guys. Now, if you're like me, you hear that explanation, you think, really? I mean, how does that happen? I mean, how sad is it that you can grow so numb to your surroundings that you begin to defend the very one who has kidnapped you? But you see, the thing is, many of us, many of us do this every single day. Now, what we do is we form this addiction to the thrill of sin. And at first, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't settle well deep within our soul. But then after enough time, we start to justify what we do by saying, well, everybody struggles with us. Everybody, this is just a part of life. It, at least I'm not as bad as this person sitting beside me. And so what Satan does over the course of time is he holds Christians captive to their sin. But the truth is, some of us don't even know it because we have formed such an emotional bond with our captor. And before long, we start to defend the one whose only motivation is destruction for our souls for all of eternity. And so in this series, our mission as a church is to run after freedom from these so-called respectable sins in our life. Now, I got to be honest, the challenge with doing a series like this is confronting various sins that we really don't view as all that harmful. We really, we just don't view them as that big of a deal. But if we take off the luster, if we look beyond what really feels natural, we will see that each of these sins are incarcerating us from living a godly life, and they are wounding the heart of God. And so today we look at the respectable sin 
of criticism. And so we're all starting off on the same page. Today we're going to define criticism as this. It is expressed judgment towards someone. Now this is when we make an opinion about someone or something and we voice it in a very hateful and demeaning way. And I think we view this as a respectable sin because what tends to be true is the thing that we're most passionate about is the thing that we're most critical about when we see it in others. For example, I love preaching. That's something that I'm very passionate about. Therefore, I recognize that this is something I tend to be critical of when I see it in other preachers. I tend to be critical of of other preachers. But you see, the danger of criticism is that it asks for everybody to come on board its ship, but the only place it drops people off is an island of bitterness, of hate, and division. You see, criticism aims to devour. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Romans. Today we're going to be in chapter 14. Romans is towards the very back of your Bibles, right in between the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians. If you don't own a Bible, uh, there is a Bible in the pew in front of you. That is our free gift to you. We're going to be on page 804 uh, in those Bibles right in front of you. Now, the author of this book is a guy named Paul, and uh, he is writing to a group of Christians who, to say the least, were very diverse. I mean, they all came from different religions. They had different customs. They had different beliefs about different things in life. And they were all at different levels of spiritual maturity in their life. And what was true for them is very true for us today. Where differences exist, the temptation to criticize lingers. And one of the things that defined these early Christians is something that we love to submit to today, and that's this. We love to believe that our opinions and our perspectives are absolute truth. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you have a certain viewpoint about something, you love to believe that, hey, there's no other way to look at it. I mean, that is it. No questions asked. I remember coming to this realization on my honeymoon that my wife and I were going to fight from time to time. I mean, we both have very strong personalities. And I remember just coming to the realization that it's just, a, it's just going to be a part of life for us. I, I, I just didn't know that there was more than one right way to change a diaper. Uh, I mean... You know, I change a diaper when I really see the need for it, and it becomes visible on my children's clothing. Uh, smell has not much to do with it, but apparently that's just bad parenting, and that's just wrong. And, and so I learned that when my wife and I disagree that we both have our rights, she has the right to be wrong, and I have the freedom to be right. And sadly, that's how many of us view different opinions in this life is we love to believe that there's not more than one way of looking at something. And, uh, uh, and so what we do is we equate our opinions with black and white truth. But here's the thing. If everything really were black and white, then our love wouldn't be tested because we would know exactly who to love and who not to love. And so if you're in Romans chapter 14, pick up in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. Here's what we read. Paul says, accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Now understand that Paul is not giving into moral relativism here. He isn't saying, look, truth is whatever you make it out to be. It's upon your own definition. No, he's talking about what are called disputable matters. Now, gray issues that really foster ambiguity and scripture isn't really clear about. And in this context, it's food and the observance of sacred days on the calendar. Now, these weren't issues of matters that these weren't matters of salvation they weren't sins that God had clearly identified in his word or in his law they were just simply matters of opinion now disputable matters today may include deciding between public schools or christian schools for your kids 
whether or not you choose to celebrate Halloween, what movies you will see and what you won't see, what books you allow your kids to read, your view of gun control, your opinion of how you think the environment should be treated, what you choose to spend your money on, what stores you choose to shop at, various doctrinal positions such as your view of the end times, gender roles in the church, eternal security, frequency of communion, worship styles, or what denomination of church you choose to be a part of. Now, this doesn't mean that you lack conviction. But what it does mean is you refuse to look down on others who don't share the same beliefs that you do and may disagree with you. And honestly, let's be honest. I mean, it's tough to do that, right? But if you're not careful, feeling too strongly about a certain opinion can lead to demonizing others. I want you to look at verse 2. Paul continues. He says, for instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Verse 3, those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Underline that phrase in your Bible. Now, some of these Christians who had converted from Judaism still felt convicted about living up to their old standards that had been laid out in the Old Testament. They only ate vegetables because they felt as if it were wrong to eat meat that had been sacrificed to pagan gods, which would have been consistent with the Old Testament law. Now, the other Christians were relishing in their newfound freedom that came through Christ and were perfectly okay with eating any type of food. And so imagine this, a church was split on an issue and they didn't know how to resolve it. And so Paul comes in and he lays down this first challenge, which is very applicable for us today, and it's this overlook things that you would rather not overlook. Overlook things that you'd rather not overlook. Now, Paul wasn't condemning weak faith here. He was calling out the Christians who had become so passionate about their opinion that it had led to division. And Paul says, look, just overlook those matters even when you don't want to. I mean, after all, you share the same father. You share the same daddy. Now, occasionally, we can put conditions upon fellowship with other believers that God never established. I mean, the truth is, you may come across some Christians whose faith is less developed than yours. And as a result, you may not agree with some choices that they make. But understand that their level of maturity does not make them any less a part of the family of God than you. And this would be like if I went to my wife and said that our 19-month-old son and month-old daughter can't yet be official members of our family because they just, they lack maturity in life. I mean, the truth is they bring nothing to the table, okay? They just don't. I mean, they don't help me clean up around the house. They aren't helping me cut the grass. They aren't helping me wash the car. They, they can't even eat by themselves, and I have to change their diapers. And so can you imagine if I went to my wife and said, you know, Savannah, I've been doing a lot of praying lately, and I think it's time. I think it's time that John Ryman and Vera learn to do these things by themselves. So I've secured an apartment for them. We're just going to drop them off. I'll even cover their first month's rent. But you know, I, we're, we're just too mature to have to put up with them. How awful of a father would I be to say that? I mean, how selfish and horrible of it would would it be for me to conclude that they can't be a part of our family because they lack development in some areas of their life? I mean, it'd be terrible. To take them away from our family would be to make us incomplete. Of course, they're precious members of our family. But you see, part of that requires overlooking things that we'd rather not overlook. You see, it's messy, but it's part of being a family. 
And you see, that's a picture of the church. The church is a very messy place. It's always been that way. It's full of infants, toddlers, adults, and just immature people in the faith. But let me just say that I am incredibly grateful that there is no perfect church out there because if there was, I would probably be the first person to come in and mess it all up. I mean, praise God the church is full of hypocrites because at least I know that's a place where I belong and I fit in. And so in essence, Paul is saying, look, embrace other believers that that don't agree with you. And part of being a member of the church is overlooking things that you'd rather not overlook. It's about having intimate community with those you don't agree with. And one church historian writes this, he says, Christian history, alas, shows numerous examples of people utterly earnest about non-essentials who have felt that liberty to break the unity of the church for the sake of their particular fetish. Now, let's not be too prideful and think that something like this can't happen to us. Instead, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. You see, it's about offering grace instead of criticism. Forgiveness instead of judgment. Mercy instead of resentment towards those who just rub us the wrong way. Now, why do we do this? I don't know about you, but Jesus has given me plenty of grace and forgiveness and mercy when I've just blown it and been flat out wrong. You see, there's something greater that unites us together as a church. It's Jesus. I mean, it's why he's often referred to throughout Scripture as the cornerstone. He's the foundation, and he's ultimately what it all comes back to. He's what this church is built upon, and it'll always be that way. Now, understand that overlooking things you'd rather not overlook does not mean ignoring sin. It does not mean that you overlook heresy or that you neglect giving wise counsel to others. Now, in the right spirit, we're called to confront sin, guard the gospel, and speak the truth and love into our brothers' and sisters' lives. But it's also about agreeing to disagree in matters of opinion or issues where the Bible just seems to be silent. You see, a tension will always exist there that is just a little bit uncomfortable for us. Now, check out verse 4 in our text. Paul continues to say, he says, Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. I want you to skip down to verse 10. He says, so why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Now, Paul's language to describe their criticism is rather intense here. Uh, we get that word to look down on. Uh, can, it can also be translated as to reject with disgust. And in essence, that's really the aim of criticism. And Paul says it's, it's fueled by self-centered arrogance. It's fueled by pride. And so the next challenge he throws our way is this. Recognize that an opinion does not make you superior to someone who disagrees with you. Recognize that an opinion does not make you superior to someone who disagrees with you. Now, the root issue taking place here was pride. Some believers felt that they were more committed to Jesus because of their stance on a non-essential issue. I mean, perhaps they thought God loved them more because they had certain convictions But as Paul says in verse 5, he says, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, go with your personal conscience over disputable matters. And the place where you land, it doesn't make you better. It just makes you different. I mean, in the end, other believers don't hold you accountable. You'll have to answer to God one day. A number of years ago, my wife and I were um, involved in a small group, a part of a ministry that we were formerly a part of. And there was a couple that joined our group that um, 
from the beginning, I was a little bit curious to see how they were going to fit into the dynamic of our group. Now, how many of you just brief show fans have ever been on a blind date before and it's just really awkward from the beginning? One of you. Okay. <laughs> awesome. I mean, before long, you're pulling out your cell phone to compare ringtones just to make up for the awkward silence that's taking place. I mean, I've, I've been on that date before, and that kind of summarizes the chemistry that this couple had with the other couples in our group. And on a personal level, we didn't view parenting the same way. They had a more radical approach to eating than we were used to. Their perception and uh, view of the church was different than mine. And they were always asking just awkward and odd favors of other couples in our group. I mean, to say the least, we had our disagreements. Well, about three months after they joined our group, I caught myself one night as everybody left our home being just overly critical towards this couple. I'd say things to my wife like, you know, can you believe that they did this? Can you believe that they, they, they made that comment? I mean, what were they thinking? It finally culminated to a point where I finally realized what the issue was. It wasn't with them. The real problem was me. You see, as embarrassed as I am to admit this, there was a part of me that believed that I was better than them because I had certain opinions that they didn't possess. I mean, how sinful and self-centered of me. And so what I learned is that if you and I don't monitor what goes into our hearts, pride prowls its way in convincing us that we're better than others. But I want you to compare that with what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, in humility, value others above yourselves. And so let me just ask you a few questions. Do you find yourself degrading someone's character in front of others simply because they see certain movies that maybe you never watch? Do you slip in a few sarcastic remarks when someone mentions the name of a person who's argued with you about a particular theological view I mean, just because they don't allow their kids to dress up for Halloween, do you roll your eyes every time their face pops into your mind? Have you questioned their salvation simply because they cheer for the University of Kentucky? <laughs> Sorry, that's probably more me. <laughs> I like what I had to do with that couple in our small group. Maybe some of us in here today, we need to confess a critical spirit. And if that's you, and let me just say, hey, me too. And I'm right there with you. Join the club. We'll pick back up in our text in verse 10. Paul, he continues to address this. He says, remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will confess and give praise to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. And so the third challenge we see is this, spend more time examining yourself than someone else. And the truth is, Jesus' lordship is universal. Now what this means is you and I have never laid eyes upon someone who won't be held accountable to the Lord one day. I mean, he alone is the righteous judge and we will all appear before his throne. Now judgmental criticism against other believers, it leaves no room for God's justice. I mean, Paul says, why should you care so much about how someone else will be judged when you yourself will be judged too one day? I mean, it only makes more logical sense to be concerned about your soul than someone else's. Now, imagine with me for just a moment that you have a fever and I've been diagnosed with really bad heart disease. 
Now, the picture and image that Paul is giving us here would be like me getting really concerned about you going outside in the middle of winter without a coat on as I'm eating a greasy cheeseburger and drinking a 40-ounce Coke. Now, you see, it's far easier for me to determine what you need to fix than for me to actually go through the discipline of making those adjustments myself. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, he says, why why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, it's been my observation that the people who tend to be the most critical and judgmental are those who have forgotten how sinful and broken they are. I mean, here's the thing. When you have experienced grace, you tend to give grace. I mean, if there's one thing that unites us together as the body of Christ, it's that we fathom its level ground at the foot of the cross. Each nail that was driven into Jesus' body was driven in by my sin and your sin too. And so if that's true, if that's true, when was the last time you just got on your knees and confessed your sin to God? I mean, if that's true, when was the last time you got honest with a brother or sister in Christ and said, you know what, the other day I really blew it. Here's what I did. I just needed to confess it. If it's been a while since you did some self-examination and you got just honest about your heart, maybe you aren't as spiritually healthy as you originally thought. You see, the true mark for maturity in Christ is seen in your ability to forgive others and give grace towards those who need it most. Why? Because when you've been given grace, you tend to give grace. I mean, when I recognize how short I am with my wife and she loves me and serves me anyway, I'm going to be a lot more patient with her when the next day I come home from work and she's exhausted and she's short with me. Why? Because when you experience grace, you tend to give grace. And again, this is the picture that Paul's giving for us. Um, Author uh, Ann Voskamp, she writes in her, her book, 1,000 Gifts, she says, if I'm ruthlessly honest, I've said yes to God. I've said yes to Christianity. But really, I've lived the no. I don't know about you, but that's my story. I mean, more often than I'm willing to admit, I have said no to living God's way. And so today, as you drive home and you digest what we've talked about, I wonder what areas of your life where you've said no to God. And where have you denied His grace? Have you been impatient with a spouse? Do you do you get angry when a friend lovingly confronted your addiction? When you think of different people in your life, does your mind dwell mainly upon their faults? Are you always finding something to complain about? You see, sometimes what you're most critical about is what you idolize because it's frustrating to you that the thing or person you're criticizing can't satisfy you. And so I wonder how many of us today need to find freedom from the thing or person that we're always finding fault with. I'm similar to what Paul challenges these believers here. What are you doing today to prepare for God's judgment later on? Well, the last challenge we come across today is this. Don't allow a critical spirit to keep you from serving others. Don't allow a critical spirit to keep you from serving others. Paul writes this in verses 17 through 20. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or what we drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's kingdom is bigger than our opinions or our stances upon various disputable matters. Verse 18, if you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. 
So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Now notice Paul's order of wording here. First, they're serving, serving, then harmony. And in harmony, we build others up. Verse 20, don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but if it is, but it is wrong if but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. Now, honestly, I mean, we're all prone to fostering a critical spirit. But as Paul says, it doesn't nurture harmony. It doesn't build others up. Now, I have all people can tell you that you can't always control those initial feelings and thoughts of criticism, but it's about what you do with them. Do you voice them? Do you act on them? Does it alter the way that you treat others? At the church where I uh, previously served down in Texas, I got to know one of our members named Yvonne quite well. Yvonne was in her late 80s and was actually a part of the church when it was planted back in the 1960s. And each and every week I would see Yvonne just slowly scooting through the hallway with her walker. She always had a really bright smile on her face. You could tell that she was that person that just loved life. You know, I don't think I ever had an interaction with Yvonne where she didn't at least ask me about how my family was doing. Now, she had a very special place in her heart for young preachers, for her late husband was a preacher for many years. And she loved our church there and was excited about the way uh, God was moving in very evident ways. I remember one particular weekend, she pulled me aside in between services and she said, you know, Patrick, I, I've got to be honest with you about something. I thought to myself, oh no, <laughs> what stupid thing did I say from stage that I need to apologize for now? But she went on to say, you know, our worship style, it's, it's not really my thing. It, I don't connect with it as much. And boy, was she ever right. If, if you attended worship at that church, it seemed more like a Coldplay concert with bright lights, fog machines, and really loud music. But then she said, but I understand that it's reaching this next generation, and so I want you to know that I'm on board. Now, if you were to go to that church today, more than likely you would be greeted by an 80-year-old lady who would have a smile on her face. Her walker would be right there beside her, and she'd say, you know, I am so thankful that you've decided to come and worship here today. If you're a guest with us, we hope that you enjoy your experience. You see, by what she does, you would never ever conclude that she had a disagreement with one of the main things that defines that church. You see, for her, serving comes before her opinions. Why? Because she is somebody who has kept Jesus the primary focus. Now, Jesus' last prayer is, um, is found in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he looked up towards his father, and believe it or not, he prayed for you and I. He, he prayed for his church, and this is what he says in John 17, verse 21. He's praying to God. He says, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And the reality is, when we judge others' opinions in a very hateful way, when we allow our disagreements to become bigger than our willingness to serve, we stand in opposition to the very answer of Jesus' last prayer on earth. It doesn't go without saying that many of us today, we need to repent. I mean, for far too long, we've harbored bitterness towards someone within our hearts. For far too long, we've allowed a distorted perception of the church to keep us from joining and serving. Maybe for you, for far too long, it's been criticism towards God that has kept you from beginning a relationship with Him. Now, I began today by talking about those three girls up in Cleveland, Ohio, who had been kidnapped for nearly a decade. Now, what I didn't tell you was 
how they finally escaped. On May 6th of this year, Amanda Berry, one of the girls who had been kidnapped, finally had this moment of clarity where she recognized that if she was ever going to find freedom again, it had to be when Ariel Castro went out and ran some errands and left the house for a few moments. And so she screamed at the top of her lungs for help and reluctantly three neighbors around their house heard her cry, came over and assisted in the rescue. They broke down that front door. They went down to the basement, pulled all the girls out, called the police, and to this day, they now know freedom. But you see, they wouldn't have been rescued had she not cried out for help. And the truth is, many of us have come in here today and we have been held hostage by the evil one for far too long. And if you ask Jesus, what he'll do is he'll come in and he'll break your chains of sin. He'll break down the door to your heart and he'll allow his grace to wash over you. But you see, that only starts by crying out and asking for his help. And so today, if you want to know what freedom is all about, Today, if you're tired of being kidnapped, if you're tired of being held ransom by the evil one, the one whose only motivation is for destruction over your soul for all of eternity, then today is the day to find that freedom that Jesus offers. And so how it starts is making your way out of your row, coming down the aisleways, and myself and a few pastors will be up front. We'd love to meet with you and just show you your next step in beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ. Or perhaps you're ready to say, you know what, I'm tired of allowing criticism to keep me from joining this church. I want to make this place my church home. If that's your decision today, then we ask that you come forward as well. But don't leave here today still in chain and still in bondage towards the one who wants nothing but destruction for your soul. Find freedom today, and that's the invitation. And so you come forward as we all stand and as we sing about our God who saves and redeems.